Hello, I'm Dave, and welcome to the latest edition of the Doctor Who Show. This is our monthly regular show for April 2017. Now, because we've got so much on, and because I'm going to be away overseas next month, for the April and May editions, Rob and I are going to do what the series does in these occasions. We're going to have a Doctor and Companion light episode for those two months, so you can decide which of those is the Doctor light and which of those is Companion light. But to help me out with this issue, which is without Rob, I've got my friends from the Goodies Pirate Podcast. For the sound of sensation across the nation, listen to radio, goodies! Um. So, hello to Richard. Hello. And hello to Rob. Hello, Dave. Thanks for having me on. No, that's good. It's always good, and we'll um, plug the goodies podcast later, but nice of you guys to join me and help me out on this Robless issue of the Doctor Who show. Now, we're mainly going to be talking about another topic, and we're going to have a good, fun topic. We want to avoid too much talking about the new series. If you want to talk about that in depth, there's a whole set of dedicated review episodes you can listen to, but we will touch on it. Uh, But first of all, we've had an email, so I'll just read that out to you guys, and then we can get your thoughts on it. So this is from David Clark. Hello all. I just caught up with class in your review of the series. I think you're quite right about the Doctor's appearance in the show. It really wasn't needed. But on the whole, the show was pretty dire. The acting was appalling. The one episode that stood out for me was number seven with Catherine Kelly. She's the one who plays Quill, and I know that that was also Rob's favourite episode. David goes on to say, really don't care if we have a second series. Though I will say in its defence, I did like the dangerous petals. Roll on Saturday and your reviews. Cheers, Dave. Any thoughts on that, gentlemen? Well, I watched the first two episodes of Class, and yes, I'm going to be another 40-something-year-old white dude who says I don't necessarily think it was for me. Uh, I will make a note, it was a lot more violent, actually, than I was expecting it would be uh, for, for what was essentially a teen show. Yeah, well, the episode with the petals is one that was particularly violent. I mean, that just showed people being eaten away by... Front flowers, basically. I didn't actually get to that. I think I watched the first one, and then I watched the one with the dude with the tattoo on his back, and there was lots of gore and blood in that. So, yeah, I'm not sure what else I can add there. That's fair enough. Rob, any thoughts? Did you watch it in the end? Other than seeing some clips, I did not watch one episode. I came to the realisation that the target audience is not me. As Richard said, I am a middle-aged white dude. (laughs) Angry white dude. Angry white dude. And look... It's great that the BBC decided that there was uh, something that they could target to, I suppose, slightly older teenagers, but it's just not for me. And it's not for me to disparage the fact that the show doesn't appear to have taken off and it has met with largely hostile reviews. Uh, it's a pity, I suppose. You know, it's, it's always good to have more genre television on television, but I think in this instance it's definitely what definitely wasn't for me. Maybe one day in the future I'll catch up and watch it, but... Um, I, I don't feel that I've missed out on anything. It'll be interesting to see how it starts to go over on BBC America, where I, I guess it was partly intended to go out there and where it's actually being matched up with Doctor Who. So here's a new episode of Doctor Who, followed by an episode of Class. That's uh, that's an interesting pairing, to be honest. I, I wouldn't have thought if you were watching Doctor Who and then you just happened to stay on, Class would be quite what you were expecting, having come off Doctor Who. But yeah, Well, it's interesting. It's interesting that you make such a distinction between the two shows. Because you're right, the t- tonally they are very, very different. Uh, well, the bit the bit I saw at Glass, it, it's a yes, it, it's not really, <laughs> it's not really the Sarah Jane adventures, is it? No, um, I look. I mean, never mind the violence. I think episode three is the one where you have two young men in bed, very unsubtly doing what two young men in bed do. I guess in that circumstance, oh. yes, not not quite Doctor Who. There's there's a certain amount of hanky panky. In class. There, there is hanky-panky in the TARDIS. <laughs> in yes. class, that's right. Well, I mean, a, sh- a show like that is obviously just reflecting what teenagers 
I suppose have always done, but seem to be doing more and more often these days. Is it or is it more the tail wagging the dog that that's just the expectation that that's what they'll want to see or what the audience would expect? Well, it's certainly what the genre is doing. You look at stuff like Riverdale, um, 13 Reasons Why, that's just come out and been a big hit on Netflix or one of those mm. platforms. It's the same sort of thing. So I think it's very much of the, it's, whether it's of its time or of its genre. Now, uh, we are at the time of recording at a point where the second episode of Series 10 has gone out in the UK, but not in Australia. Uh, Rob and I did get up and watch it on iTunes, and our review is already on the feeds. So if you haven't listened to our review of Episode 2, go listen. In fact, by the time this comes out, Episode 3 should be out as well. Guys, you've watched Episode 1. Any quick comment? I'm probably at a point now where I'm a little jaded with the new series, and and you're all looking at me and smiling, so I'll change that to say I'm a lot jaded (laughs) with the new series. (laughs) Uh, Look, I watched Episode 1. I thought... It was it was better than I was expecting because having watched the trailers, and, and I actually have made the point when we've been discussing this, if you were Pearl Mackey, I think you would have every right to be extremely unhappy with the way they portrayed her going into it because her portrayal in that first episode was nowhere near as bad as, as I was expecting from watching the trailers. Yeah, I agree. Because they were really horribly cut. I agree. Um, and there is that scene, and I think I'm guessing you guys probably mentioned it on your review, but... There's that scene where the doctor takes her to see that where they go to the Daleks, and the whole section there where she's talking about them, why do they say exterminate and stuff? That's just totally cut. Yeah. So whether that's based on feedback from from fans or, or the backlash that, that happened online, or whether that was just a conscious thing, I, I'm always going to happen. I don't know, but yeah, look, I thought it was all right. I'm a bit torn. I have railed for a long time against the whole Doctor Who is now essentially a show about emotions and feelings and relationships. So on the one hand, I welcome the sort of more back-to-basics approach that we had. It was, it was a lower-level story. Um, it, it wasn't overly convoluted. But on the, on the flip side, on reflection, the episode is about, you know, you know Bill's feelings and relationships. She, she's got this girl that she's interested in. She's got this sort of background about her mother who, who has passed away. No photos and all that sort of thing. And the Doctor is still dealing, still dealing with the ramifications of River's death or whatever. And it, it, again, it's, it's a, it, the story itself was incidental. It was the Doctor dealing with his feelings, Bill dealing with her issues, and and, and the alien dealing with its issues. issues. And the alien story, which you know, any other episode during the season could have been a much stronger aspect, was really an afterthought. I thought. But but I suppose it's an introductory story, isn't it? I mean, the intention here is obviously to introduce Bill and set her up. Yeah, and look, I agree. I mean, it, the, the, the title is, is double-edged, obviously, the pilot of the pilots. And yeah. I made the, made the conscious decision to sit down with my two daughters, who are 9 and 12, and just say to them, look, you know, tell me what to think about this at, at the end. And, you know, they, they watched it, the bits with, the very scary bits with the, uh, with, uh, I think it's Heather. My daughters flinched. I mean, I... I, I query that if you are going to have a show that's aimed at a TV audience, why you are flat-out scaring the, the kids in the audience, because those aspects were quite scary for my kids. Um, they liked it well enough, but they had lots of questions that weren't, you know, I wasn't able to address because they didn't have the background of watching this. Yeah, series. right. I, I understand exactly what you're saying. The big point that I've made, I made in our review, is that having spent the last couple of years saying what I really want and what I want Moffat to do is give us... Just a good, fun adventure in time and space. Two episodes in a row now he's given us that, and I'm not going to complain because I'd much rather have that than what we got in Season 6 or even last year. I think we're back to that that really good middle run of episodes we had in Season 8 mm-hmm. where it was just good stories. And if that's what we get, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, I, I, I didn't watch Season 8 
bar the first two episodes, um, as, as I think we discussed at some length on 42 to Doomsday. But uh, and, that, and yes, that is a shameless plug. But so I, I really have come into this fresh almost because I really haven't watched a lot of new series Who for probably five or six years now. So what do you think of Keith Peter Capaldi as the Doctor in this one? Because he's attracted a lot of praise for that episode. I thought he was better in this than the other episodes I've seen him in. Again, and look, what what initially turned me off him was I watched when the episodes leaked. Uh, when he first started, I downloaded a couple of them and watched them. And I watched the first one because I wanted to see what he was like. And then I watched the, the Into the Dalek. Um, I actually found him a, a totally unlikable prick in Into the Dalek. And that really turned me off him. I, I don't think you're alone in that. No, which, which I must admit, and I really didn't watch the rest of that season. I watched part of last season. I watched the two with the Daleks. And then I came back and I watched the three at the end where they wrote Clara out. And I still wasn't overly impressed, so I haven't gone back and watched the middle part of the season. So like I said, I did sort of come into this fresh. I liked him. I thought he was good. He's still not my favourite of the new series Doctors. That's still Christopher Eccleston. Or second half of season one, Christopher Eccleston. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, But yeah, look, I I quite liked him, yes. Rob, any final thoughts about the Doctor? I suppose uh, Capaldi is uh, hostage to a certain level to the scripts that he's given um, and anything else that he can bring to it sort of improves it. I... I think that Capaldi is probably the best of the, of the modern series Doctors, uh, even taking into account sort of the powerhouse performances you get from Eccleston. I thought in the pilot, he just gave his usual very, very good performance. I just, again, find it a pity that we're having a Doctor dealing with... He's effectively in mourning and shut himself off from society. I just don't understand that. Why? Well, I mean, there's clearly something that this is going to be the big arc, why they're in oh, the yeah. basement and what's in the vault and whatever. But, but I mean, he's effectively given up adventuring. The TARDIS is out of order. There's a literal sign there saying, I'm yes. not travelling anymore. You know, uh, what, what is Doctor Who if it's not an adventure series where you travel from place to place and meet, have exciting adventures? Well, we'll see how that plays out in the rest of the series. And if you do want listeners more information or more thoughts on the series, go check out our reviews on the Doctor Who show feed. Now, at this point, we would normally talk not so much about news as a formal segment, but about what's going on in Doctor Who, which would include news. There's not a lot out there at the moment, given that Doctor Who is actually being broadcast. So the news is actually the show itself. But there's a couple of things I did want to touch on before we get into our main topic. The first is that literally about half an hour ago, the covers for the next four Mr. Men Doctor Who books came up on Twitter. So I'm going to live get your reactions to those books. So if you want to come around where you can see the laptop... And we'll start off with Dr. Second. Well, he's holding a flute and he's got a mop top. Yep. <laughs> That's right. It's a little bit Beatles-esque. And a bow tie. Yes. Dr. Seventh. Yes, okay. He has an umbrella and a hat. He has no clothes on. He, he just has run. flat out no clothes on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah shoes. I know, I know. Shoes. That's true. Now, this is the one I'm not too sure about. Dr. Eighth. Does that look like Paul McGann to you? Looks like an angry Paul McGann. It does look like angry Paul McGann, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange. And... Now, see, that's the one that should be angry. <laughs> that is, that's just disturbing. <laughs> that is a disturbing Ninth Doctor as a Mr. Men. It's a very odd one. That's the one that does look naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that, and that's the one that should be angry. He, he, looks, like, he looks like he's on ice or something. <laughs> Trooping. <laughs> so, yeah, look, um, I haven't read any of them, but I thought I'll get your reaction on the covers. Have you guys even seen these other than online? Uh, I haven't seen those before now. I do remember when the, they announced the first four. I... Must admit, I've never actually seen a copy of them, so... Um... You can see what the BBC is trying to do. It's trying to capture an audience from just out of the cradle 
And then there's the old school fans who are in their 60s and 70s now. So that will buy anything with Doctor Who on the cover. Basically, yes. Um, it's it's interesting that they would go down that path. It is an interesting tie-in. It's not one I just sort of thought that immediately leaped to mind. But I guess in the age when you've got Doctor Who Lego, it's all, I mean, just put Doctor Who stamp on anything you can. It's brand management, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose we've got one, one, classic, British, uh, one classic British title merging with another, I guess. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I remember when I was a child, you know, through a phase of reading all the Mr. Men and all yeah, that. Yeah, I saw what I mean. Yeah, like young boys of six or seven or eight, even girls, in actual fact, going, going through and looking at these books. But it's very odd. Yeah, no, no, so I've, I've read them and I, I have read them to my kids. Um, they're, they're both now too old for them, but so I don't think they'll be coming to my house, but <laughs> those books. But so they're not ghost written by Paul Cornell or somebody like that. <laughs> no, well, Paul apparently has once again left Doctor Who. Oh well, it's it's like the Winter Olympics. Every four years, you know, you have the Winter Olympics, you have a US election, and Paul Cornell leaves fandom. (laughs) (laughs) We won't go any further into that. But what I did want to discuss is fake news coming to Doctor Who, because over the last two weeks, particularly, but even over the last three months, I I think more than ever, and tell me if you disagree, we've just had this basically fan theories written up by credible news sites or newspapers and published as news. You know, rumours about who's coming back in the series, who's been cast as the Doctor, companions being sacked, companions not being sacked. All, all this sort of stuff that is just published as fact, and it's all conjecture and it's all speculation, and none of it comes with coming from the BBC. Are we, are we, in, are we in the Doctor Who fake news era? Yes. But, but I suppose it's all really just clickbait rubbish. It is 100% clickbait that has no accountability whatsoever. You can you got online news sites from credible sources, and they will just make news up out of whole cloth. They will trawl the forums and pick up the fa- their favourite item of outrage or their favourite item of potential speculation, and they will just run with it. And because the news cycle, it's no longer even a twenty four hour news cycle; it's probably two to four to six hour chunks. It gets its moment in the sun, and then something else comes along, and we immediately forget about it. Yes, gets its moment in the sun. You get to watch the advertising that comes with it. Well, exactly. And that is exactly all it's for, a vehicle for advertising. And do they know that as fans, the moment anything like that pops up onto our social media feeds, we are going to, in some cases, believe it, in some cases, be excited enough that we do retreat, we do share, we do mention to friends. But I guess the thing is, if you're taking that that cynical approach that's all about clickbait and advertising, they don't care what you think as long as you go, oh, what the hell is this about? And you follow the link. So retweeting it, obviously, for them is fantastic because the more people, the more click-throughs they get. And I guess even what we've been occasionally doing, which is sending it to each other going, hey, check this out, isn't this a load of horse manure? Look, this still, still gets them a click. Yes. There has always been rumour in Doctor Who. I mean, I've got a scrapbook full of nonsense news articles from the 80s and early 90s talking about the, what's happening with the Doctor Who movie, which particular well-known British actor is attached to it. All we've got here is that this nonsense is supercharged by the internet. It's as simple as that. So, and I will say, it's fun to talk. I mean, you know, I have shared them to, to you boys and, and some other people just for the conversation, not because I necessarily believe it, but just for the conversation. I did like one theory that came out that um, a couple of the leaks, the Chris Marshall one in particular, almost sounded like a deliberate attempt to crap to find out who was a leak. You could almost imagine <laughs> you could almost imagine Moffat sort of going around the office wishing to somebody, hey, just here's a tip: Chris Marshall's the Doctor. Oh, here's a tip: Julius Wahal's the Doctor, and seeing which one appe- appears in the paper the next day. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, well, I, I think it reached stupidity. I think it was Chris Marshall where they said, "Oh, he was so popular." Now they take it. The bookies had taken him off their, uh, had taken him off their odds list. Yes, it's always a good story when they can say the bookies have done something because it gives bit of bit of credence. To well, it. It, it gives a perception of credibility yes. to something that doesn't have it. Well, this is and this is all it has: the perception of credibility because it's slapped onto a website somewhere and it looks vaguely hmm. professional, but it's just. As you say, Dave, I mean, there's no BBC commentary. We were having a chat this week about um, a particular bit of fake news and uh, one of our friends was uh, was adamant that it was true. And I, I looked, you know, I looked off the BBC news and there was no mention of it at all. So it's easy to get, to fall for the trap that it, because it looks right, doesn't necessarily mean it's right. So it's a fun place to be in fandom right now. And I suspect there'll be a lot of this craziness until the next Doctor is cast. But let's face it, I mean, it helps the BBC as well because they do the bit about Peter Capaldi's leaving and they can spin that out for several months and get the speculation hype, who it's going to be and this sort of thing they can build up and, you know, we're going to make the big announcement on X date and then, of course, you get all the excitement and speculation around that and people getting up in Australia at four o'clock in the morning to, to, <laughs> to find out who it I, is. Only the really sad people do that, Richard. <laughs> and, and, and well, I, I, in my own defence, I was actually still up working on a fanzine. I didn't actually get out of bed <laughs> That's for totally wrong. That, that makes it so much better. <laughs> yeah, what I will say is, well, the BBC marketing and internet department is not necessarily like the uh, legions of trolls that the Russian government deploy. <laughs> you can imagine that some of this rubbish is formulated by certain individuals within the BBC and just, you know, we'll just tweet this or that under a pseudonym or something like that. Perhaps. Yeah, look, it's possible. It's possible. Anyway, more fake news than news, but that's our look at what's happening in fandom. So we're going to move on now to our main segment for the episode. And as I said, given that we're focusing on what's being broadcast out in other parts of our feed, we'll have a bit of an episode for people who are looking for something a bit different or a bit of a break or a bit of a change, because let's face it, Almost every podcast and their dog are doing reviews of Series 10 at the moment. Not all as good as us, but they are all out there. So we decided to just have a fun topic, and the topic we're going to look at is our favourite Doctor Who books. So I've asked each of us to pick seven top Doctor Who books, interpret that any way you like, allocate them any way you like, which hopefully will give us a top 21, or if there's a snap, maybe a top 20 or a top 19. But let's just go down memory lane and have a chat about our seven favourite books. So, but any of you like to kick us off? Richard? And you're pointing at me, so uh, all right, I'll go first. Um, the first one I chose, and, and look, these are all, as we just said, quite personal choices. Um, the first one I've chosen is is the target novelisation of Revenge of the Cybermen by, uh, by Terence Dix. The reason I chose that is that was the very first target book I received. I've probably only really been a fan of the show for a couple of months at the time I got the book. I really became a fan of Doctor Who when it moved to the weeknights in 1978. And thanks to the ABC's repeats after they showed season 13 and 14, they very quickly went back and showed season 12 yet again. So I did get to see... We, we, we suffered that. He didn't leave. Yes, we did. Oh, that's terrible, isn't it? Genesis of the Daleks meant again. <laughs> so I, I did see... I had seen Revenge of the Simon at the time I got the novel. And, and that really did start my love of the Target books. I'm very much of the generation that was encouraged to read by Terence Dix and the Target novels. And that's one of my favourites. Look, it's not the best Target book. And and I collected eventually the entire set, but it is the very first one. So it's quite special for me. Rob, what's your first one? So again, like Richard, uh, these are, my list isn't necessarily the best and brightest of all Doctor Who. It's the ones that speak to me the most. Uh, And in no particular order, I've gone um, first off with Time Worm Revelation by Paul Cornell. Mm. 
there are particular times and places I often associate with the books that really speak to me. Now, this particular one I purchased as a second-hand copy because I was a university student. I didn't have that cash for the big dollars. And I vividly remember reading this in my dorm room at university on a Friday night and being completely enraptured by the symbolism used and the quality of the writing that Cornell displayed. He cut his teeth with fan fiction in fanzines like Queen Bat, so Cornell would quickly become the standard bearer for new, the New Adventures' broader and deeper mantra, and also a byword for strong writing that the other writers would soon emulate. Well, most of them, or some of them at least. This book probably has the psychological depth of a puddle, but for deeply affecting symbology, this book has no peer in the range. Well, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, the, the Doctor is, is psychologically attacking himself, you know, the Fifth Doctor and the Sixth Doctor. Yes. Chained away and all that had you thing. had you read the others when you picked that up, um, or was that in that series? I don't believe I did. I don't believe I. I think it would have been quite a jump. I, yeah, yeah, it would have been. It was, it was. Because I, I remember reading Witch Hunt at a later date and thinking that was quite basic compared to this. Right. No, because I, I do remember when the Time Worm series came out, fandom sort of split a bit. You're either traditionalist, which meant you like Exodus, or or you're a, you know a new wave fan who but that meant you like Revelation. Well, I like both of them. I thought the subject matter in, in Exodus is one that I was you know, sort of familiar with, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think you're right. I remember getting fandom when Revelation came out. Those first three were reasonably well regarded. Exodus particularly was a very well, good maybe book. Maybe not Apocalypse. but Maybe not Apocalypse, but Revelation was the one, as you said, Rob, where people have gone, now we get what they mean by deeper and more broad. Yes. And that sort of started that path. Yeah. And the imagery, I suppose, I'm just it's the sort of imagery that appeals to certain teenage boys or men in their young 20s, I suppose. It really hit me hard, so I quite enjoyed it. Fair enough. Well, I'll give you my first pick. Now, I've picked seven books that are representative of different parts of the Doctor Who book range, because otherwise it would have been very heavily skewed towards one particular area. But I'll start off with a target as well, and I've picked one that's... Uh, So you've got props, see? Well, it's my house, so I just have to take it off the shelf. (laughs) Uh, I started off with one to represent the, uh, the, the first golden era of the target books, and this is Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. Now, not only is it the novelisation of my all-time favourite Doctor Who story, it's a bloody good one. It's got wonderful stuff. It looks back at the uh, history of the Silurians. You know, it has that prologue, which is them you know, looking out at the sun for the last time before they go down into the bunker to hibernate. Uh, it's got the bit where Walker kills Oakdal, the two Silurians. One kills the other, and as Oakdal's dying, he has the flashbacks. He remembers himself, you know, back as an egg being hatched and. The stuff about Miss Dawson, you know, who's a minor character in the TV show, but in this, the reason why she's so desperately loyal to Dr. Quinn is because she's terrified that she's going to end up going from, as the book puts it, a woman where people say, why don't you get married to, why didn't you get married? And so the fact that Quinn shows her any affection at all just means that she clings to that, talks about why Major Baker's why he is, because he messed up dealing with the IRA. Just so many good things, but it also comes with wonderful little pictures there's you know, one there of the Doctor doing his Venusian Aikido. Uh, there's one of the Tyrannosaurus there, which is far better than it is in the television version. <laughs> we'll, we'll tweet these out when this goes out. And there's also one there of the Silurian on a chat show, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and again, we'll, we'll treat those out. But yeah, look, it's, it's my favourite story. It's my favourite story. Really well done. And I think this is one of the best ones from that first golden era of the Target books. I have got three editions of this. I've got an original 70s copy the Blue Spine repeat from the 90s, and the special collector's edition that came out in 2013. It's not the one I've got the most copies of, because for Doctor Who, in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, I've got those three plus the hardback special edition last year, so four copies of that one on the shelf. 
Richard, what's your next pick? There you go. My next pick, it's it's another one from my childhood. Um, I've chosen the two Doctor Who monster books. So there was the the first one, uh, which is a look through monsters really from the 60s and, and, and 70s. And then there was the second Doctor Who monster book, which is really the Philip Hinchcliffe years. They're, they're the sort of A4 size uh, ones? The, big, the, the first Doctor Who monster book is an A4 size one. Uh, the second Doctor Who monster book is an A5 okay. book. It's a smaller book. And as I said, it, it basically just covers the Philip Hinchcliffe stories. They, they were an important part. They were books. The second Doctor Who monster book I got not all that long after my copy of Revenge of the Cybermen. And that I read that and reread that and reread that many times. That, that sort of helped cement my love of the series. And, and I've told this story before. I actually had a friend who had the first Doctor Who monster book and I borrowed it from him and I borrowed it from him so many times. One day he actually just said, look, do you want it? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, really? Yes, please. And, and then, of course, got it home. When I got a little bit older, it was sort of like, he's taken the poster out. <laughs> when I got a bit older, a bit wiser about collectibles. But uh, no, I read and reread those books multiple times. I, I really love them both. I mean, they're, they're very cheap lightweight books when you look at them now. Yeah, but, I, th- I think the equivalent for that for me was um, K-9 and Mechanical Creatures. Oh, yes, yes. Which, which I, yes similar that, one, and then yeah. there was the Terry Nation Dalek special, which was one around the same time. Yeah. Did, did you enjoy them so much, Richard, because they sort of connected with the show for you or, or give you an opportunity to look back or see things that you hadn't otherwise seen? I think probably the first Doctor Who monster book particularly was stuff I hadn't seen because... I suppose when I sort of really got into Doctor Who, I had probably about three years there where it was, you know, it was probably the that 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 half hour from six thirty till seven o'clock was probably the most important half hour of my day there for a bit, pretty much. And I do have, you know, I do have memories of either dinner being served at like quarter past six and absolutely shoveling it down so I could get out to the television, um, or beseeching Mum to hold it till seven o'clock. Yeah, I, I think they were just a way just to connect and enjoy the series. I think really. I mean, I probably once I got a bit older and they, there was sort of that year it wasn't on. I started to, to probably it wasn't quite as obsessive about it. You didn't get the shakes at six thirty. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I found a copy of the second Doctor Who monster book in a charity shop here in Melbourne a few yep. years ago. And just thinking about it now, just wondering whether it was someone. You know, going through the things of their childhood and saying, "I can't have this anymore," it was actually just like a deceased estate, and someone's <laughs> someone's family has just said, "Well, you know, we don't need this." We don't need this, and got rid of it. Yeah. So no, no they were a big they were a big part of my early early love of the series. Mm, no, I remember those. Rob, uh, I'm going to go back to my childhood as well. I think I've mentioned this before that in the house, I was the only one who watched Doctor Who. Uh, my parents, you know, they worked on the land and they, they just had no interest in that sort of thing. No, that, that sounds familiar. Uh, no, having said that, they, we all did go, go off in the car to watch Star Wars at the, uh, at the drive-in in, the, in 77 or 78, so they had some interest in, in that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, they come down to Melbourne because uh, we were living in the country and uh, this is before Christmas, and they come home and uh, they presented me with a copy of Doctor Who Key to the Time, the hardcover by uh, Peter mm. Hayden. Now, I think at, by this stage, I well, I hadn't bought any copies of DWM, so I had no real knowledge about production history of the show or just the general history of the show so I mean it's a chronological look from 63 to 83 I think it was published in 83 84 mm. yeah around then because uh, it does cover it was, a, it, was a, it was the 21st anniversary yeah, so it was right, 84 yeah. and I found it utterly captivating and fascinating there was you know clips and photos and I mean some of the facts facts alternative facts aren't quite correct but you know I mean you can forgive that because it covers quite a lot of material but even now, I've still got my copy. Uh, even now, I've still got the dust jacket with it and all that sort of thing. And um, if it wasn't lodged in a box somewhere buried under more boxes, I'd probably pull it out and just have a nostalgic trip down memory lane because it, 
it's uh, it's great. Yeah, I certainly had a couple of the Peter Haining books when I was younger, and I think the Time Traveler's Guide was the one for me that was that first one that, oh, this has photographs from your Hartnell stories and Traven stories. And you then, as you get older, realise how, as you said, completely incomplete it actually was. You know, the definitive guide of Doctor Who spaceships has about eight spaceships. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they, they were wonderful books, and, yeah, I understand exactly where you're coming from on that one. So for my next book, I've decided to represent the second golden era of the Target novels. Now, one of my bugbears with Doctor Who podcasting is that every podcast I know where they do a topic about the Target novels spends two-thirds of it waxing lyrically about the first golden age and Chris Achilleos and Malcolm Hulk, and then they're saying, yes, they got a bit rubbish in the middle because they were being churned out by Terrence Dix one a month. And then they run out of time and say, oh, yeah, the second lot, there was some good stuff at the end. So I want to actually take some time and acknowledge just how good that second golden era was where you got those McCoys being novelised, but even some of those last Pertwees that got novelised, the last Trouders that got novelised. And so I've picked Remembrance of the Daleks by Ben Aronovich, published in 1990, and I also have the 2013 anniversary copy as well. This, to me, sums up everything that was great about that last golden era of Target novels. The cover by Alistair Pearson is absolutely incredible. It's a really good piece of work. But this, again, goes back to authors actually taking time to expand the story. So here you get a flashback to Davros remembering how he became the crippled guy in the wheelchair. And he was. there's this thing where the scientists put him together and gave him as much life as they could after the atomic explosion. And basically, I think they left him with a gun and said, you know, if he chooses to end it all there and then, well, we will understand. You can push the button on you, the chair or... Yes. Something like that. And he says, no, I'm going to survive this and go on and conquer the universe, so to speak. All the stuff about the where the special weapons Dalek or the abomination <laughs> is mentioned about how the, you know, the radiation from the, the weapon floods its chamber and it's now twisted and mad. And even the other Daleks, like, you know, just don't talk to him. <laughs> no chats around the, uh, around the water cooler. Yeah, so, you know, it's a really good novelisation and uh, of a very good story that I've really come to appreciate over the years. So, yeah, remember to the Daleks. That, yeah, that, I, that I, do remember that. I do remember that being a really good read. I, yeah, I, I was quite excited to read that because not only does it sort of give you the TV show, but it also, as you say, it builds on stuff that's sort of tangential to it and um, I mean you get elements of Dalek culture which you know you would never see depicted in the show and mm. there's, there's, there's stuff like that which really enriches the whole mm. experience and you see the same with the Battlefield novelisation uh, the Ghostfield novelisation actually explains what the hell's going on which is quite useful <laughs> so yeah there's some really good books in there but even you look at Ambassadors of Death for example which came out of that time that's got a lot more than most of the other Pertwees it's a really good era and really lovingly presented. I think at that stage, the people running that range really understood what they were doing and what a big deal this range was to so many people and actually took some time to you know, make it all work at that point. As opposed to you know the early 80s where they would just slap a photo on the cover and get out 124 pages as fast as you could. It, it really is a pity that a lot of really good stories were treated in such a slapdash manner, but we are where we are. Yeah. Richard? Number three. Now, this, this may be a snap. This is another early book, but again, it was a big leap forward in terms of reference books, and it was one I devoted a lot of time to reading and rereading, uh, which is the L'Officier's Program Guides. <laughs> Have you got it? I, I didn't, but I came close, but yeah. Okay. So you and Robert both got that one. Well, we can talk about that together then. Yeah, well, these were really the first big Doctor Who reference books published um, and they were very basic I mean you look at them now I mean there was a red one and a blue one and the first one had a, a program listing up to Legopolis 
because <laughs> that shows when it was first published. And then, then there was the second one, which was sort of the mini encyclopedia uh, of, of production things and uh, actors and storylines and that sort of thing. And and I remember those. I read and reread them. That's where everybody got their idea of the, the production codes from. Yes. Um, and of course, you could go around quoting things like MM and OOO. <laughs> or Monster Peloton being YYY. That's right. <laughs> I, I think, Richard, if you, if you look at any fan's copy of uh, the program guides, they are well thumbed. Spines are cracked, the covers are bent, pages are yellow. They have been reread and reread. And Dave has. Uh, I've just reached my mine off. The, the the front cover is barely hanging on. The yeah, spine no, is in not pieces. Even the original that's one. That's, that's, that's no, the nineties no, reprint. This is the nineties reprint that has all the stories. Uh, but season twenty six is just just airing. I just think. just um, it all it's got is the titles and the cast. There's no plot summary. That's right. You can see in here. I've, I've even highlighted which stories I had on video and which stories I had the books of. And, it yep. really is the ultimate list. I think a lot of Doctor Who fans fall into the habit of making lists either in their head or on paper and whether that book spurred that on or just exemplified it uh, doesn't really matter but yeah it's it's just a wonderful just a wonderful artifact even of, of where Doctor Who was at that time it, it is and and I mean look there are again look there are better reference books there are more detailed reference books but really they, they were the first big because so they were published by the same mob that did the target books and I think they were uh, their big, some of their biggest sellers mm. But even just at that point, knowing who a particular actor was or who a writer was or who a director was, this, this I mean, for a long time, was the only real reference book. Mm. Oh, that's your next one as well, I take it, Rob? That is, yes. I mean, I, I can only echo what um, uh, Richard said. It's basically full of the sort of information that only teenagers, teenage boys can digest and be fascinated with. But, um, look, I, I remember many a time, because I used to catch the bus to school, and uh, I would, uh, I think it was my copy of the school cover, I can't remember, but I would... It, Many a happy day, just sort of sitting, sitting while the bus driver along, <laughs> and just reading about these things that I had yeah. no information. I, again, I wasn't buying Doctor Who magazine uh, at that point. I had no idea about the heart malaria or the trout era. It was just a complete blank slate. So to have any sort of information, no matter how whether it was a hundred percent accurate or not, or how sparse it was or not, it was some something that you could sort of anchor your present love for the show into its past. And I think, in fairness to it, what was there was accurate. They weren't mm. always the most in-depth summaries or synopses, but they were accurate. No, synopses. they were accurate. The cast yeah. list and everything in there are, are always accurate, yes. Yeah. All right. All right, well, I'm going to get to my third pick then, and I've picked ones that represent the Virgin New Adventures. Now, I could easily have included three or four of these books in my top seven, stuff like Exodus, Blood Heat, First Frontier, Bad Therapy, or Dying Days, but to represent them, I've gone for The Higher Science by Gareth Roberts. Now, this was published in 1993, and to me is the point where this range really starts to take off in a particular way because you've had the four Timeworm books, which had good and bad ones. The Three Cats Cradle books, I think, weren't all that great. And then they started to get into the individual ones. And um, Nightshade was great. Love and War was great. Transit wasn't. Well, it depends <laughs> who you were. Some, some elements, I do remember some elements of fandom thought Transit was fantastic. And, and the more traditional elements of fandom thought it was rubbish. It was certainly controversial, but look, for me, The Higher Science is one of my favourites, if not my favourites, where it all comes together. It introduces the Shalonians as a race. It's got McCoy as a Doctor being really, really good. It's got an entire subplot that's basically the crew of the Black Seven um, go, going around, and they've even got an Aurac-type substitute, <laughs> which, which was really cool for me. It's a really good story. Uh, it holds together well. It's the first 
proper solo outing for um, Bernice. Although she's in transit, I think she spends a lot of time unconscious and being replaced by Kenneth Hugh Lethbridge Stewart. Um, so it's a really good adventure for her. And to me, it just set it all up. It was the right tone, the right balance. A lovely cover there of the Shalonians coming up and McCoy looking enigmatic. Um, I really enjoy it. And I enjoyed a lot of the Virgin New Adventures, and so I've got one represented here. I do remember enjoying that when I read it. I, I think probably for me, my favourite Gareth Wallace books were probably the three missing adventures he did, the the, uh, the three set in season 17 with Tom Baker. Yeah, they were very good. Um, they were really good, and I thought they really, really captured the era. Plus, of course, actually, I really enjoyed his novelisation of Sharda. So, that's true. But that, that That's moving on a lot further. It is. No, I really enjoyed it. Rob, any thoughts from you? Yeah, or? I remember at some point I stopped buying the New Adventures, I think after St. Anthony's Fire, for whatever reason. I mean, there's a lot to read. I think it was about the 20th or 21st book. But I do recall reading The Higher Science. And again, you know, the whole deeper, broader thing. It, it, look, it, it enabled you to have, to experience, you know, like a, I don't know, a more in-depth Doctor Who story than simply what was portrayed on telly. And, you know, Gareth Roberts, he's still writing today, I think, and he's doing for television, mm. tweeting funny pictures and all that sort of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I, look, the, the new adventures are just one of those wonderful things that only Doctor Who fans effectively can come up with because a lot of the Doctor Who writers who did it were fans. Mm. Fans made good. So, And it's interesting, I listened to the Big Finish audio adaption of this about a year ago when it came out, and even then, and they've done a couple of the Gareth Roberts ones, including some of the Season 17 ones, you look at just how much they've had to cut out just to make that work as a traditional four-part story, mm. and you realise just how much depth you've got in these books. All the, you know... Not just the C plots, but the D plots and the E plots. Mm. So much stuff that wrapped in them. And I think we were very lucky to have those. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Richard. Number four. This this was almost a snap, I think, with Rob earlier. Um, I have gone for a Peter Haining book. I actually went for a celebration. Okay. Uh, not the key to time. A celebration was his 20th anniversary book, and that was the first one he did. And, and again, that was a book it had a lot of detail in it and, and it's not looking back on it now it's not all correct but that had a lot of detail about the series in it there was a lot of there was interviews with with the actors there was a, a there was really great story guide at the back which had little story synopses in it which which was great for someone who, who at that point really only knew thanks to the abc really only knew the tom baker era and the few pertwees they occasionally screened um i, I think at that point the hartnell troutons were, were something i knew really only from the few novels and again, that was a book I read and reread and reread numerous times. Yeah, look, I don't think there's much to add from what we said before about the Hayden books, but whichever one you pick, whether it's that, 25 Glorious Years, they are of their time, but they were a big deal at the time. I mean, he's been dead for a few years now, but he was one of the great anthologists um, in, in Britain. I mean, he not only did he do Doctor Who, he did Sherlock Holmes. Did, he did oh, that's right. Ghost, yeah. ghost stories and stuff like that. So I can only assume that he had a great appreciation for the material because... Those books are... They're pretty good. They're pretty good. Rob, your next pick. My next pick. Um, I'm uh, expecting to hear a resounding snapping noise very shortly. The uh, House Stammers Walker Decades books. Yeah, you got a snap from me. Okay. <laughs> Look, for me, building on the, the Lafissia's program guides, these three coffee table, hardcover, beautifully illustrated, beautifully designed, lavishly, you know, you know the ph- photographs in there are just fantastic. It was just another great insight into the series and into the production side of the series into the history of the people involved i mean some of the stuff that they, that they were talking about there i mean yes they've written about them in some fanzines earlier i think some of this stuff was previewed in fanzines like scarrow 
uh, for instance. But in terms of a serious look at the show, I don't think at that, certainly in the early nineties you couldn't beat these books. No, no. Well, they they were the the big quantum leap forward. Yes. I, I think in in terms of reference books, and, and it's very much. I mean. You're in the 90s, so that the show is now out of production and you've got fans writing things like The New Adventures. And, of course, you've now got fans starting to write reference books. And they're really fans writing the kind of books they would want to read themselves mm. that have that level of detail and that level of presentation that a fan would want. Exactly. I mean, if you compare what we were getting in the, in the late 80s that were being pumped out by J&T... <laughs> I mean, there's no comparison, really. There's no comparison, really. Oh, yeah. come on. The TARDIS Inside Out was a great book, bro. Yeah. 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 You run out of toilet paper. Um, <laughs> but I, and I, look, I went through a period where I culled my collection of books, and unfortunately, these three hardcovers were, were some of them. And I, that's probably my deep regret from that period, that I don't have physical copies. Yeah, I just loved them. I loved them then, and I love them today. Yeah, no, I, I agree. They, they were great books. Yeah, look, I'm certainly a big admirer of them as well. The one negative that I would say as somebody who's a few years younger than you guys is they were very pricey at the time. They were sort of the first of those, particularly to get them out here. Yes. Um, and I'm looking across at the shelf now. I've got the 70s in hardback, but the 60s and I think the 80s I both got in paperback. And even then, it was really a case of you know waiting for a Christmas present or you know something because they, they were they were expensive and they were privately produced. Well, they were yeah they were virgin I think. So. Yeah, but no, you're right. They're, they're excellent books, and how Stammers and Walker really became a byword for quality research at the time. Well, I did. I mean, and then of course the, there was many other things like the, uh, the there was the, the three decades books. Of course, they did the TV companion. They then went on did all the Doctor Handbooks. Yes, um, as well. So they they pretty much had the market cornered there. I think for a while. Yes. Yeah. The next book I've got represents the Virgin Missing Adventures, which I think is a series that is very much overshadowed by its new adventures cousins. So I thought it was important that I came, had one here. And I've picked the Sixth Doctor novel, Killing Ground, oh, yes. by Steve Lyons, <laughs> published in 1996. Now, the Missing Adventures had some that really hit and some that really missed. I think they had double the task the New Adventures did, because not only did they have to be good books in their own right, but they had to capture an era as well. And sometimes it was very hard to write a good modern Doctor Who story and capture the Troughton years or capture the Hartnell years. Yes. Some did them very well. Um, uh, uh, um, Gary Russell's Troughton book, Invasion of the Cat People, was very good. Uh, Gareth Roberts did a very good one with um, Hartnell, The Plotters. Yeah, that was good, actually. Uh, Venetian Lullaby, that was a good one. But it was very hard to capture that sort of era. But in The Killing Ground, Steve Lyons basically is the first person who really takes the Colin Bake era into a whole new direction, shows what could have been. He'd previously written Time of His Life, which basically starts with the Doctor having dropped Mel off at the end of Trial of the Time Lord, decides he doesn't want his future, so he's just going to hang out on a rock somewhere and you know, so that he can never become the Valyard. Of course, he gets found, adventures ensue. Um, he picks up a new com- companion, Grant, who is in this book, and when they go to Grant's home planet to find out why he's got this pathological fear of robots. And it's because he grew up in a colony that the Cybermen took over and basically used as a human farm. So the Cybermen would basically breed humans there, come along once a year, and take the pick pick of the crop and Cybernize them to keep their numbers up. So taking that as the premise, it's a very violent book. It's a very explicit book. Famously, one of the segments has a, um, a researcher into cyber history who 
becomes so obsessed she decides to undergo the cybernization process and record it as she's going, which is a very intense scene or little um, saga. But it also has the colonists who want to defeat the Cybermen basically going down the cybernization path. Okay. And you know, how far do you go to beat your enemy in, and not become your enemy? And that's really good. It also has the cyber nomads who are the ones from Revenge. And it actually does a little bit of fan continuity. What do they call it? Um, fan retconning. Oh, that's right. Where they have the emotion chip fitted or whatever it is. Well, it says that they um, they emulate emotions like by putting their hands on their hips to intimidate the humans. <laughs> <laughs> because they know humans have emotions and that works. So there's some of that fun retconning. But this is, to me, this is the real start of the revision of the Colin Baker years. It's something that a lot of books would do afterwards. Big Finish would certainly do a lot more of, but I think it's a really amazing book that is is also very, very chilling. Yeah, no, I, I do remember enjoying that a lot when I read That's one of the few I think I went back I and remember, read. Given the year it was published, I remember reading that in a ticket line to buy tickets for the 96 grand final. <laughs> <laughs> back, back when you used to camp out overnight. Oh no, just getting up very early in the morning. So, yeah, no, I remember reading that. That's, that is a very striking book. And as you say, well, I mean, the books and the audios serve Colin Baker far, far better and the Sixth Doctor far, far better than the TV series yes. did. Yeah, look, that's fair. So, Richard, you've had a snap. I, I have had a snap. So we might skip over you this time and go to Rob. Yep. So um, I'm now going to turn from the non-fiction side to the fiction side. My choice is The Shadow in the Glass by uh, Justin Richards and Stephen Cole, and that is the, um, the Sixth Doctor, the Brigadier, uh, Adolf Hitler... Aliens, World War Two, UFOs. Is, is that Virgin or BBC? Uh, I believe that's BBC. I think so, yes, yeah. it's BBC. Yeah, I, was now, inside, I don't know that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, originally, uh, at this point in the schedule, Instruments of Darkness by Gary Russell was meant to fill, was meant to be published, but for whatever reason, there was a delay. So there was a mad scramble, apparently, to get this book written. And my memory is that they got it done in about three or four days, which I I don't think is correct. I think I'm misremembering, mis- but. However long it was, they did it in a very, very quick amount of time. Now, the, the core elements are the sort of things that I love. The Sixth Doctor, Adolf Hitler, Nazis, <laughs> World War II, and UFOs. And, and the occult, actually. There's, there's elements of the occult. Stop laughing at me. <laughs> strong imagery, Rob. Strong oh, imagery. Strong imagery. No, I don't dress up in black uniforms and march around the house. It is a very dark book, a bit like Killing Ground. And the ending... Look, there is a victory of sorts, but one of the main characters doesn't necessarily come make it at the other end. Again, the, doc, uh, the Sixth Doctor is treated very well. He in- manages to interact. I mean, you get that element where the Doctor can fit into any sort of society, and he does manage to hob- hobnob with high-ranking Nazis. In, in that coat. In that coat. Well, I'm sure he's wearing something different. But it's it, despite the fact that it was a rush job, it is really well written. It, it, again, it contains all the elements that I, I really enjoy, and they weave them together really well. And looking at the plot synopsis uh, again uh, yesterday for this, there is a lot going on, and it's three hundred or three hundred and fifty pages, and they basically bring it off really well. And um, it's one that still sticks in the memory for me. Fair enough. I haven't read that one. I have to admit, but it sounds it sounds, sounds good. good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, my next pick is also a BBC book, and this is representing, for me, the BBC novels. I've picked The Face of the Enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this book was part of the past Doctor novels, and it has a very interesting premise, which is that the Brigadier basically sees the Doctor go off on an adventure, which we know is being the Curse of Peladon, but stuff is going down whilst the Doctor's off on Peladon. 
the, doc, the brigadier doesn't have the doctor to help him. So what does he do? Well, first of all, he goes and finds Ian Chesterton and says, can you help me? And he tries and Barbara's along as well. And no, this is clearly alien tech. This is stuff we need the doctor for. What do we do? Well, the master's in prison at the moment. He's a time lord. Let's do a deal. <laughs> so he basically does a deal with the master to get him to help him to fight what he thinks are alien invaders. The master here is brilliantly written. I think this is probably the best piece of master fiction, probably better than a lot of TV stories as well. It's by David A. McKinty, who had already done First uh, Frontier uh, and uh, Dark Path, which are also very good master books. And he's really the, the, the final of that, that trilogy. The master here is just nasty. He's psychologically manipulative. He is callous. Um, there's one really emotional stuff where Ian thinks that Barbara's been killed. And the master knows this isn't the case, but sees Ian upset and suicidal and all the rest of it, thinks, this will just be fun to watch. I'll just leave him just leave him thinking this for a while, just to enjoy Ian's suffering. So, look, spo spoilers for a book that's 20 years old, but it's actually a sequel to Inferno, where the people in the parallel universe for Inferno who survived, uh, because they're on a moon base, because in this parallel universe, when the Bannermen arrived in 1959, Rather than the Doctor defeating them, everyone being happy, the fascist British government basically found them, slaughtered them, and retrofitted their technology. So <laughs> they're far more advanced than we are, um, and they had a base on the moon that obviously survived the events of Inferno. In that parallel universe, the Master, who has not yet turned bad, helped them to defeat the Yeti and the Cybermen, but has now been sort of enslaved by them. And they're using his tech from his TARDIS to come across to our universe, because well, ours hasn't been blown up by Project Inferno. <laughs> and so it all goes from there. It's a wonderful book. It's great from the Brigadier. It's great to see Ian and Barbara again. Uh, Harry Sullivan gets his introduction. So there's a lot of what you might call fan wake in there, but it's really well done. And the Master's just amazing. It's the Delgado Master, of course. Isn't it? it is, yeah. The cover. Is, yeah. Um, you say he's nasty, which is not how you would term him in the TV series, but is it a logical extension? It, it's the Master who, in Terror of the Autons, where... Somebody's in his way as he goes up the steps to the radio telescope, just throws him off because that's the quickest way to do it. Yeah. It's the master that kills uh, the guy in the plastic chair because he's just annoying him. Or, or puts the, the troll doll in the back of um, the dad's car because he's just annoying him, so I'll just kill him on his way home. You know, it's that master. Okay. No, I do remember that being a really good book. And David A. McKinney was probably, my, probably one of my favourite writers out of that. It, um, it speaks a lot to the sort of nature of publishing that a writer like David McKinty never escaped genre fiction to an extent. Not, not genre fiction, but TV tie-in material. He now, writes, he now writes a lot for the Osprey range of books. Military. Yes, military books. Oh, okay. I, don't, I don't think he does the military-themed ones. He more does the ones because they've now moved into yes. publishing game-related books. Yeah. Uh, I think he writes quite a few of those. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with one of those titles. He's a really good game designer who yeah, he is okay. actually. I must admit, he's moved into that quite seamlessly. But uh, yeah, I have got a couple of them, and they're, they're really good. Well, books. now that Dave has waxed lyric, I'm going to go dig that up. That sounds fantastic. So I don't know that I've read it. So yeah, you can borrow oh, this copy. Look, a handover. No, it's certainly one that stands out for me, and yeah, very happy to lend that to you, Rob. Thank you, Richard. Well, now I'm down to my last two. We're now going to jump forward quite a bit, and I've gone with another reference book, and and this is one. Just as a background to this, we, we were all three of us involved uh, in fandom here in, in Australia and in Melbourne 
across the 1990s. Gold, golden era. The golden era, that's right. The hardest years, the darkest, darkest years, years, the, the fallen, fallen years, the roaring years. These shall not be the forgotten years. But uh, we were heavily involved with, with the, the club here in Melbourne. And one of the things we used to do a lot of in the uh, Doctor Who Club here in Victoria was we used to bring a lot of merchandise. So this is, this is a book about merchandise, and it is, of course, uh, David Howe's Transcendental Toy Box. And for anyone who was interested in Doctor Who merchandise or a collector of Doctor Who merchandise, this book was an absolute godsend when it was released. This, this was a great book. And not just purely and simply, look, there were a lot of fans who immediately went out and thought, oh, now I can price my collection and work out, <laughs> work out what I should be asking for when I decide to sell off. But just the sheer amount of work that had gone into just cataloguing variations on different releases and the, the sheer range of when you got a John Pertwee jigsaw puzzle, you know, how many there were in the set, etc., etc. And the... <laughs> The thing with it was, I, I do remember when he was putting the book together because he was posting in a lot of places, I want, this is the areas I'm interested in. If you have any of these items of merchandise or can expand my knowledge here, let me know. And then he published the book. And then he spent about the next 18 months, I think, with people going, oh, you missed this, you missed this. And he sort of, well, where were you when I was asking last year? And I must have been sad to say, I actually had a couple of things. I, I did send him a couple of local things here from Australia. I did send him. And, and they did a revised second edition probably about a year or two later. But uh, no, this, this, was a, this was a great book and really a, a, the only real Doctor Who merchandise publication that, that's been done, really. Um, I, I am sort of living in hope because he's published a couple of updates to it. I've sort of been living in hope that there would be another one produced, that uh, the revised edition or another another expansion. Well, he's but, probably looked at the sloth of material that came out for the new series and thought it's too much for any one man. <laughs> Life is too short. Is this book uh, full of colour photos? It has a colour section. They both have colour sections in the middle of them. Okay. And there are black and white pictures throughout. Uh, throughout. Look, it would be impossible to take photographs of absolutely everything that that would turn it into a you know twenty volume set. I think <laughs> if you were to if you were to take proper reference photos for everything, no, and and, and even if you're just interested in merchandise, even if you're not interested in collecting it, uh, it it's still a, a really good book just just for that. Okay, I don't have anything to add to that because no. it's the definitive book on the topic. Really, it, it is, Rob. So my last two selections are linked by the fact that uh, they have the same author same writer involved uh, the first one I'm going to go with is Alien Bodies by Lawrence Miles uh, now aside from Corp, uh, Paul Connell and Kate Orman um, the key writer in 90s Doctor Who fiction for me anyway is Lawrence Miles or Mad Larry is his name Mad Larry there's a lengthy essay that could be written about Miles his politics his feuds with other Doctor Who figures and the sheer quality of his writing uh, again I have strong memories of, uh, of starting to read this book this time at a football game during a quarter time break I think now, while I've forgotten the detail of the game, the opening chapters of the book remain with me today. Now, Miles was an ideas machine, a fecund writer who wrote fearlessly and took no prisoners. Now, while he would later disappear up his own backside with the interference duology, uh, at this time, a book like Alien Bodies, which actually prefigures a lot of the modern series, uh, is a foundational text on how to take a franchise and turn it into a completely upside down without actually abandoning its key concepts. I think it's a really richly written book. It, takes, it has a lot of great imagery that, you know, the search for the Doctor's body or the, 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 the auction for it. Taking, you know, seemingly useless Second Doctor, 
monsters and actually turning into something menacing. Sort of a hint of a greater cosmology to Doctor Who that, again, prefigures the, the Time War and is, I think, the source of a lot of angst for, 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 uh, for Lawrence. It, if you haven't got it, I really urge you to go out and get it because it is a great book. No, apart from being a Doctor Who book, it's actually just a well-written science fiction novel. So, spoiler warning, that second Doctor monster is? Crotons. Yes, exactly, the Crotons. Wow. Yes. <laughs> There's some talk about a crystalline matrix that, that it is the Crotons, I believe. Yes. Wow, okay. So, yeah. I don't. I must admit, I don't remember that. I think I probably moved on from Doctor Who fiction by by the time the BBC range really got going. I do remember, though. I do remember he was seen as a bit of a, and again, depending on your view, either a bit of a, a, a fresh, fresh new voice uh, in fiction, or, or someone who was basically wrecking the range. I think, depending on whether you're a, a, a traditionalist or not. I think there was no doubt, though, that he was the one that gave the range its voice and its tone at a time when it was trying to be distinct from the Virgin books. Trying to find his own voice, he was one who really came along and said, "Here's a direction." We yes, can go. and I do know fans who read them and, and thought his books were just amazing, particularly when he got to something like Interference, which I think they then deliberately set out and retconned out, didn't they? Yes. Uh, well, basically, yeah. I think um, it was. I think the editor of the Range wrote a book that Lawrence Miles is absolutely furious about because it does sort of invalidate his entire yes, exactly. setup of those two books. Exactly. Yeah. Look, I haven't read a lot of his work, but I have read Alien Bodies, and I agree, it's a very good book. So that brings me to my pick. So for my sixth pick, I've just picked something to represent all the oddball, various different yep. things that could come out. And I've gone for the script book of the Masters of Luxor. Oh. <laughs> so That's niche. <laughs> so these script books started coming out in the late 80s and they made about seven or eight of them. Some of them were at the time stories that were not missing but not available. So they did the first Dalek story, they did An Unearthly Child, they also made some odd choices. They did stuff like the Talons of Wen Chiang, which... And Tomb of the Cybermen, I think. Tomb of the Cybermen. And they still progressed with it even after it was found. Yes, they did the Demons. Um, Power of the Daleks, though, was one that I think my first real knowledge of Power of the Daleks was from the script book. Then the audio tapes came out. Then the novelization came out all pretty quickly. But something I really regret they didn't do more of was they printed the scripts for the Masters of Luxor by Anthony Coburn, which was the story that wasn't made when they made the Daleks. So as an insight into what could have been, it's a fascinating read. Uh, the story is all about the TARDIS crew that you know, we know from season one uh, getting captured in a city run by robots or ruled by the perfect one, who is a humanoid robot. It is very 1960s. The pacing is exactly what you would expect. The cliffhangers are really interesting to read in the way that they plot them out because they're very much about, oh, we've just discovered something roll the credits, rather than the we're in danger scream, roll the credits. It's a fascinating look at what could have been. Um, it's got plenty of capture and escape sequences. So, you know, early on. I think it could have been quite a good story had it been made, but of course the fact that Daleks was made instead really, you know, obviously made Doctor Who. But it also meant that Anthony Coburn never wrote for the series again, controversially. So, yeah, I think this is just a fascinating little niche piece of... Um, Information. Do you think in place of Dalek mania there could have been Luxor mania? No. <laughs> okay. No. I, I, I do remember I owned that book and I do remember reading that script and my takeaway from it was I was very glad they made the Daleks instead okay. because I, I think had they continued in that vein, I don't honestly think we'd, we'd probably got... Uh, you, uh, we, we'd be here today. Although had this field, say, the slot, the sensorite field, as, yes. as, as just a general sci-fi adventure in the Yeah, sense, potentially. It could have been quite good. All right, Richard, your final pick. My final pick. Well, I've come forward again, and 
I had a few here I was sort of vacillating between, but I've gone for a biography. Mm -hmm. And there really probably was one real choice here, which was Richard Barson's J&T biography, uh, which I think is just... I have read most of the Who biographies, and I did have some honourable mentions here, including Matthew Waterhouse's Blue Box Boy and John Pertwee's Moon Boots and Dinner Suits, and indeed the William Hartnell one. But uh, I think for, for in terms of, of even... It's not even because it's a great biography. It is. I think it's a great biography. But in terms of just the background and the what was happening in television and particularly in the Doctor Who production office at the time that's really the final word, I think. Uh, I, I think you can say Eric Saywood is, is probably conspicuous by his absence because I know he declined to be interviewed for it, but he is there really through everybody else's recollections. Look, I have to agree with you. Uh, this came very close to getting to my pick as well. I read the first edition twice and then I bought the second edition and read that on the plane back from Manchester earlier this year. I've waxed lyrical about this on a number of podcards, which is in many ways why I didn't choose it. So I'd have to be fresh. But you're right, as a look, not just at the Doctor Who of the era, but at British television in that era, it is a wonderfully good book. Have you read it, Rob? I have. I remember reading it, yeah, a large chunk of it sitting in the car waiting for my family to return up. And yeah, it's a great book. It really is. I, the, the, the earlier sections, I think, are a little bit shaky because I suppose there's not that much information on his life. And really, the life of a boy isn't that particularly interesting. Well, well it's better than the Anthony Angley one. Yes, where there were just huge decades missing. Yes. The edited life. Well, I, I think I think the only one, just going off of a slight tangent, and actually we've been very good today, we really haven't got off many tangents at all. Um, sorry, I have to wreck it. <laughs> um, the, the only one I, I think really just shows what an intensely private person he was, and there really wasn't anyone who really knew him well. And, and someone who struggled to hang on to friends, I think, if you, you could put it kindly. Yes. Fair enough. Rob, your final one plus any honourable mentions you wanted to make. So I have spoken about non-fiction books and I've spoken about fiction books. I'm now going to choose an opinion book. Um, the About Time range... This was very, very nearly a snap from me. I, I very nearly put these in, but yes, go on. Look, if I was going to choose one of them, I suppose I'd choose the Pertwee volume because it's the first one and it really does hit you over the head. We've got uh, Lawrence Miles and... Uh, a fellow named Tat Wood. I'm not quite sure what Tat actually stands for, but anyway. This, you could go on the internet, I suppose, at this time and find lots of opinions about Doctor Who. Some of the, then, you know, anyone can give you an opinion. Not many people who give you those opinions can actually argue them cogently or even coherently on the forums. The About Time books, whether you agreed with any of their analysis or commentary or not, they could. They could. We've got two really good writers who are capable of clear writing and clearly, uh, you know, setting up a case and arguing it. And the About Time books weren't afraid of slaying a few sacred cows, uh, weren't afraid to tell you how they thought it was, and they were, they were better. They were, in fact, frankly, better for it. That you know, if you can have a few sacred cows challenged or, or, or slaughtered, um, often allows you or gives you the opportunity to you know look at something from a different angle. Now, unfortunately, uh, later on in the series, uh, Lawrence uh, stormed off, I believe, for whatever reason, yes. and they replaced him with another writer. But they're, they're really good books. They're really, really, really incisive. They are. That, that is a, that's a great range. Yeah, my, my takeaway, I haven't read all of them, but the ones I have read, you may not agree with all their conclusions or all their opinions, but it's fascinating to, to read to, them. Are they doing... 
Are they still working on another one? Because I know they yes. did the one for the Eccleston season, the first David Tennant yes. season. The, uh, the range, or well, the publisher, sorry, of Norwegian Press, Large Pearson, he uh, occasionally frequents Gallifrey Basin. He has talked about the fact that they are working on another volume. Excellent. Uh, when it's coming out, look, it may be later this year, but it, it is coming out at some point. Excellent. Uh, if you're reading these books for facts, because they do talk about facts, uh, they're known for their incorrect facts in some instances, but ignore the facts, come for the opinions because they're great. Yeah, no, I'll agree with that. All right, well, it comes to me to do my final pick. Now, before that, I had a couple of honourable mentions. The Discontinuity Guide, which was the first sort of really fun reference book that fans made. Uh, Who Killed Kennedy, which doesn't, oh, oh, doesn't yes. fit into the New Adventures or the Missing Adventures, but Who Killed Kennedy is a really fun interesting fiction book uh, History of the Universe oh yes which I'm a big fan of yes and and I had the the J&T and the Matthew Waterhouse biographies in there as well but I've decided for my final pick to pick a reference book and I've gone with Cybermen (laughs) by David Banks published in 1988 excellent this is this is a wonderful reference book it is gorgeous to look at the um, artwork in it by Andrew Skilleter that's all the way through it is just incredible stuff. But this was a book that not just gave us the behind-the-scenes production stuff about the history of the Cybermen. Um, it goes right back into the science that you know Kit Pendler and Jerry Davis were looking at. It talks about modern cybernetics. It talks about you know the way they were designed and built and the, the stories and everything. But it also has a fictional segment where it basically puts the history of the Cybermen into some sort of coherent... And it actually works quite well. Reasonable narrative. Yeah, some coherent narrative, which, again, is just fascinating. Interspersed with little factoids, little sidebars, uh, illustrations. It talks about the different characters. It talks about all the background, the different designs of the Sidemen, and you know, why they are, and all that sort of thing. And it's just a fascinating read. It's an interesting read. It's imaginative. But it is just a gorgeous piece of reference material. Yeah, I do remember. I, I had that. I remember sending off for the hardback, and I remember it was months before I got it. I'm assuming they must have been trying to get enough orders to justify the print run, perhaps. But uh, no, I remember being really impressed with that book when it came. It was a gorgeous book. Indeed. I've, I've actually only got the paperback version, but the advantage of having that is that it does mention that Silver Nemesis is coming. Ah, yes, that's it, right. It, it yes. doesn't actually talk about it in the fictional narrative, but it does have behind-the-scenes stuff about basically David Banks' own experience and I think mostly his own personal photos of you know, him in the costume and what they've changed on the costume and him with Sylvester and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, there hasn't been another good Simon story on TV, I would say, since The Silver Nemesis, although Killing Ground was good. I do remember Illegal Alien in the BBC range. Yeah, that, was, actually, that wasn't a bad one. And indeed Iceberg in the New Adventures I, I quite enjoyed, yes. which was by David Banks as well and actually yes. draws on the narrative that he does. In, well, Illegal in Alien, I think, was a rejected script, I think, Mike Tucker, wasn't it? Yes, it is Mike Tucker. I think it was a rejected script. I, I don't think it was rejected in so far as it was submitted for season 27, so it never oh, could, okay. could have been accepted. Yeah. And it wasn't so much rejected as Andrew Cartwell said, look, here's the bits that work, here's the bit that don't go away, maybe we'll consider this for a future season. And there were no future seasons, so it got turned into a BBC book. But yeah, that was a lovely piece. So we've covered 19 different topics there with a couple of snaps, but mentioned a lot of them. And I think it says something about Doctor Who and fans' love of the series that it has inspired so much literature, more than almost anything else. I mean, Star Trek has sort of had a lot of popular books that came out, Star Wars has had its extended universe as well, but in terms of just swathes of fiction, non-fiction, novelizations, 
I mean, you, you don't get a shelf of a hundred or, or ninety something Star Trek novelizations. You get the three um, omnibus editions, which sort of has them all as a, a chapter. I was only going to say that Doctor Who is probably one of the most extensively covered pieces of fiction anywhere. More so than some people's lives, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it is. So there's some wonderful stuff there. Hopefully, listeners, you'll go out and pick some of these and go and find them. Uh, many of them are available now in PDF copies floating around the internet, or if you want, you can get some of them quite for quite good value on eBay or Amazon as second-hand editions. So yeah, go out and have a look at them. So next month, Rob will be back without me. I'm going to be in the um, United States for a few weeks while uh, our next our next episode is being recorded. So Rob will be back and he'll have somebody to support him. Gentlemen, of course, you are my co-stars from the Goodies Pirate Podcast. So listeners, if you are a fan of the Goodies and you want to check that out, come find us on iTunes or Facebook. And Rob, you are the co-host for the 42 to Doomsday Podcast, which is the Melbourne-centric podcast of Australia, the Doctor Who show, of course, being national. Oh. <laughs> in so far as it covers two states <laughs> yes. do you want to tell listeners where you can find 42 to Doomsday well you know well all in all the usual places of course go to iTunes 42 to Doomsday Twitter at 42 to Doomsday Gmail 42 to Doomsday Gmail Facebook just search for it I mean just go onto Google and punch the name in you'll find us so yeah fantastic well we'll speak again soon thanks thank you thank you You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, or names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.